pastors of my era, you know, we said, well, you know, in order for us to um, grow the church, we need to be attractive to those outside the church. And so what we did is we kind of created this church mall mentality, where it's all about come and pick and choose what you guys want. Come and get your needs met. And the church with the best programs, the most, yeah, uh, the best programs to offer people, they were the ones that grew. Now, granted, you know, we know the Holy Spirit was working, you know, in these churches. And the reason we know this is because what we're modeling or we're learning from the results that came from Willow Creek. You know, the church that, you know, I think, you know, is really set the pace for all-American churches in the past few decades. But I think also, not only have they led the church in the past few decades, I think they're leading the church in the future too. Because they've come, and they've come forward and said, you know what, guys? You know, we got it wrong. We thought it was all about programming. When really, we should have been about discipling. We should have been about moving people from those who didn't know Christ to those who accepted Christ, who are growing in Christ. And for those who are growing in Christ to become more, to uh, have their relationship grow closer to Jesus Christ and to the point where they're Christ-centered, where they're all out for Jesus Christ, where it's whatever you want from me, Jesus, I will do. Wherever you want, whatever you want me to give up, I will give up. Wherever you want me to go, I will go. Whatever you want me to do, no matter how hard, no matter what the sacrifice, no matter what the danger I will face or my family will face, I will follow you. You know? And they finally got that. And they're telling the rest of us that we need to be about that too. That it's not about programs, although programs are important. That the main thrust is to move people along the path so we, can't, so we all could become Christ-centered in our relationship with Jesus Christ. If you go to the um, next slide where it says, a journey of a thousand miles must begin with a single step. Now I know we use that as a motivator for a lot of things. Okay, you know, I know that I've got to get in shape. So a journey of a thousand miles must begin with one push-up. You know, if I could do one push-up. Or whatever that goal is that you have in your uh, mind that we all realize it's got to start somewhere. That, you know, if we're going to go anywhere, we, just, we have to take the initiative to make that first step. And this is what this is all about. And when we're, today we're going to be talking about, well, what's that first step in that journey, that wonderful journey with Jesus Christ? Because it is my belief that... Um, the, the only way to live your best life, you know, I'm not stealing that from Oprah, but you know, the only way for you to live your best life is in, is in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the way. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that our life's going to be easy and free from difficulty or mistakes. But our best life here on earth can only be achieved in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And that starts off with a single step, and that single step is conversion. So the question is, why do we need to be converted at all? Why do we even need to um, acknowledge certain things about 
um, where we are now in relationship with God? Why do I need to be converted at all? You know, if I'm good enough, isn't that good enough? Well, basically, the need for conversion lies in God's nature and in God's holiness. You know, Millard Erickson said, God's holiness is his absolute purity and goodness. This means that he is untouched and unstained by evil in the world. He does not in any sense participate in it. God is not only personally free from any evil, he is unable to tolerate the presence of evil. He is, as it were, allergic to sin and evil. God is a holy God, and this is his nature. And in his nature, he cannot tolerate sin. He just can't because that's a part of who he is. He is a holy God. In Habakkuk 1.13, the author writes, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. James 1.13 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. You know, those who seek him must seek the same holiness in their lives. For those of us who are walking, who, have already, uh, who are already in a relationship with Jesus Christ, since um, God is holy, we need to be holy. And scripture is clear on that. Once again, it doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, but we should be living a life striving after God's holiness. You know, in First Peter 1, uh, 15 to 16, Peter writes, but just as he called, uh, called you is holy, or excuse me, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. We all need to be, exhibit this holiness in our lives. But not only do we need to be, is God, that God cannot tolerate sin because he's a holy God, you know, God's wrath and anger against sin is based out of love. Now, it's really interesting because when I came to God, I thought, okay, God is this angry God who says, well, if you don't believe in me, I'm just going to send you to hell. I'm angry with you and because you, you've made so many mistakes in your life. And so I saw God as an angry God. I saw God as a wrathful God. And I didn't realize that, you know, anger and wrath, they're really not a part of God's attributes. You know, you know really God, God exhibits those qualities in, uh, as a result of sin. But when you take a look at God's wrath and God's anger, it's all rooted in love. Okay, it's all rooted in love. Just like a parent's love to a child. Now, I see my son here. And I'm going to share an experience of uh, when I was, you know, with him at a store at the mall. The mall was crowded, okay? And so I was purchasing his shoes, and Michael, I forgot how old you are, but you were probably about this big, you know, whatever age this big is, that's how old you were. And so I said, stay with me. i got to purchase this. So I go and purchase this item, and, I, and so after I purchase this, I turn around, and this little guy is gone, you know, right then and there, you don't know, only a parent knows just the fear and anguish and terror of, my son is missing. 
You know, so, you know, part of me, you know, there's a good part of me who just wanted to freak out right then and there. But I said, okay. I just calmly started calling his name and no reply. And so I walked to the door to make sure that he could uh, get past me. And I was calling his name. And once again, no reply. Then I started panicking. Because I said, either he got, what if somebody took him? I don't know. Then all of a sudden, I see this clothes rack start moving like this. (laughs) You know? And I go, what? So I go over this clothes rack, look over, and I see my son who's playing, playing hide-and-seek with me. And at that point, I was just so relieved that I just grabbed him and hugged him, and there was a moment of blissful joy, followed by anger. <laughs> Michael, what did you do? You, know, you had daddy so worried. Don't do that. You disobeyed me. But why was I angry? I was angry. My anger was out of love for my son. Meaning that I'm his father. My job is to protect my son. And then when he was playing hide and seek with me, he disobeyed me. And I thought, you know, the worst. But my anger came out of love. The same thing it is with God's wrath. God is totally, totally opposed to anything that hurts those he loves. Okay? When you think about God's anger and wrath, God... Outside his nature, God is totally opposed and vigorously opposed and will not tolerate anything that hurts those he loves. And who who does he love? He loves us. He loves us. So when you think about that, the sin in our life, the reason why God is opposed to it is not because he, he hates me. I used to think he hates me. No, it's because he loves me and he is opposed to anything That can hurt me. And sin hurts people. You know, know, you've seen the results yourself. How your actions, how my actions have hurt other people. Or you also know how other people's sinful actions have hurt you. Right? And so one of the things we realize is that um, we need to be uh, converted because God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. And we were all born in sin. We were all conceived in sin. And so ultimately, if that sin is not taken care of, we cannot be in God's presence because we all have that sin. Next slide. The need for conversion began in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis, uh, Moses writes, the Lord God made garments of skin, and this is after, they, after the fall, for Adam and his wife Eve and clothed them. And the Lord said, The man now has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Remember what God told Adam? You could eat all of the you could eat from all of the fruit from all of the trees and bushes in the Garden of Eden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said that if you do eat from that, you will surely die. You will surely die. And so what happened? Adam took and ate. Did he die? 
right then and there? No. But what God was saying there is, you know, if you take from this fruit, if you choose to disobey me, you will surely die, both physically, because eventually, um, because of that death into the world, so Adam eventually died. But spiritually, you would die also. And it was because of that. And because of sin entered into um, Adam's life, God banished him from the Garden of Eden. Okay, he said there's no way he could um, eat from the tree um, of life and eat it because, you know, we don't want this guy to live forever because of his condition now. So he banished. And so because of sin, we were now separated from God in our relationship with him. And right there, we, if you go, uh, one of the things that um, you're going to learn, maybe in your studies or if you go on our website, go to the section where it says move, and we have um, more notes for you. And this is from the notes where, you know, we know that God established the penalty of sin to be death, both spiritual death and physical death. You know, in Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. God set that standard. God said the consequences for sin is death both physical and spiritual. And we're going to talk about the consequence um, for spiritual death later. But also, because of that, God sent Jesus to pay for our sins by his substitutionary death. God sent Jesus to pay for our sins by his substitutionary death. In Romans 5.8, Paul says, But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, not only is Christ uh, is God a holy God, God is a just God. God cannot let sin go unpunished. You know, I mean, would you worship a God, you know, that could take a look at all of the horrors in life? You know, and like I said, I, I'm a chaplain for the San Gabriel PD, and I've seen some pretty bad stuff. You know, when you respond to a sexual assault charge. You know, when you have to arrest somebody that was inflicting physical pain on their spouse. That's pretty horrible stuff. And, you know, fortunately, I don't get to see it all the time. I just see it maybe once a month or so when I ride out with them. But that is pretty horrible stuff. You know, we, had, we just had Brandon and um, Philip come back from Taiwan. Not Taiwan, um, Thailand. <laughs> Sorry for those of you no insult there. Um, but they came back from um, Thailand to work with Zoe, who their ministry is to uh, help kids who have been rescued out of human trafficking. These little kids are being asked to do some horrible stuff over, you know, all over the world. And I don't think either one, myself or you would worship a God who just said, that's okay. You know what? That's human nature. You know, everybody makes mistakes. You know, that's okay. When you see that, there is no way you would be able to worship a God who just let that go. God is a just God, and he can't let those things go. Because a lot of times we want to worship God who's that teddy bear, the God who's loving, the God who forgives our sins, and he does. 
But we also, he wouldn't be God if he wasn't a just God. And I don't think we would want him to be anything but that once you see. Or maybe some of you who have gone through a lot of pain and suffering in your life, you wouldn't want a God that just dismisses that without um, any sort of penalty and just says that's okay. God, there had to be a price for this. And that's why Jesus Christ died on the cross. He died on the cross for all of our sins, for all of my sins, all of the sins I committed in the past, all of my sins that I committed in the future, in the present, and all of my sins I will commit in the future. We're all nailed to that cross. Somebody had to pay the price. And then the next thing we see is that the provision of conversion is Jesus died for this, all the sins of the whole world. Okay, The provision of conversion is Jesus died for all the sins of the world, for all the people. In 1 John 2, 2, it says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. But then, next thing is that God proved that Christ's death was sufficient by the resurrection. Okay, God proved... Now, see, Jesus Christ bore all of our sins on the cross. Okay, Jesus Christ bore all of our sins on the cross. He was made sin for us, but God resurrected him. So if God resurrected Jesus, it shows that God, that his death was sufficient. Jesus took all the sins of the world for us, and God resurrected him. Jesus took the penalty for our sins. Therefore, that proves that we too can be resurrected and that his death was sufficient for our sins. Now, some of us might be sitting here saying, Pastor, you don't know what I've done in my life. You don't know the mistakes that I've made in my life. God does. Do you think for some um, reason that when Jesus Christ was on the cross taking our sins that God somehow didn't know the things that we would do? He knew those things. He knew those things. And he forgave us. That's why he sent his, that's why he's, uh, sent his son. And finally, God invites everyone to believe on Jesus Christ to be saved. God invites everyone to believe on Jesus Christ to be saved. In Acts 16, 29-31, um, Luke writes, And the uh, jailer, now this is um, when <clears throat> Paul and Silas were in jail, the jailer called for light and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. What you see what happened, Paul and Silas were in jail, and there was this violent earthquake, and all of a sudden all the prison doors were open. And this jailer was just freaked out because he knew that you know, if the prisoners got out, he would probably be executed for that. Um, but in verse 30, he, he then brought them out and asked, Sir, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And so what's he saying here? That if you believe in Christ, your whole household will be saved? No. But what he's saying here is believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the, believe, salvation comes through belief. For not only for you, but your entire household. So God has made a way for us to be saved. For everybody in the entire world to be saved. But for, before we could be saved, there is a process. And if you go to the next slide... It says there are certain truths to be learned in the conversion stage. The first is we must admit that we are lost and cannot save ourselves. Okay? The first thing we have to do is we must admit 
that we are lost and cannot save ourselves. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now this goes against our nature. Because we come from a culture that we feel that, hey, if I work hard enough at something, I'll be able to achieve it. You know, especially, you know, my generation and the generation before us. If you just work hard enough at something, then you'll achieve it. I mean, you just have to take a look at these guys, um, these Olympic athletes, as we watched them. You know, not only did they have the skill, but they worked really, really hard in order to win that gold medal. And that's, you know, some of, we take that belief system with us. And that also somehow bleeds into our faith, that if we work, if we try hard enough, we can achieve it. But this is something, this is one thing that no matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try, you cannot achieve salvation on your own. The second thing is we must agree uh, that we can only be saved through Christ's death. Romans 6.23 um, says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Third thing is we must accept Christ's death for our sins by faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. And I think this is the toughest thing. And I've shared this before from the pulpit. Whenever you hear something that's way too good to be true, we're very suspect of that. And so what Paul is saying here, that God's salvation is a gift that God gives all of us. You can't work for it. You cannot earn it. It's a gift that has to be received. And, and so it's hard for us to think, my eternal destiny is based upon me receiving this gift? You know, I'm not sure about that. What are the strings attached? You're right. Isn't that the first thing we think? What are the strings attached? There are no strings attached. You have to receive it. And so, you know, when I get into heaven... And I know the first thing I'm going to do is I'm just going to fall on my face before the living God and just be so grateful and thankful for his mercy and his forgiveness because there is no way I know when I look at my life that I could have ever earned or deserved to be in God's presence. You know, it, and it's when we really understand our sin, when we really understand how our mistakes affect God, that's when we understand God's mercy. Because if we look at our life, if we look at our mistakes, if we look at us and like, ah, you know what? We all do it. No one's perfect. Big deal. You know, God's mercy is kind of watered down. But there are times in my life where I've just overcome with my mistakes, with my sin before a holy and righteous God. And I just fall before God and thank him for his mercy and his forgiveness. Finally, we received the work of the Holy Spirit to authenticate that we were born again in Romans eight sixteen to 17. For the, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are <clears throat> children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in the sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Well, how do you know that you've been saved? With this, this spirit. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And that Holy Spirit 
is the one who affirms that you are a son and a daughter of Jesus Christ. And so this is a part of the conversion process. It's a belief, it's, it's faith, but it's also belief and trusting in Jesus Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. And finally, I want to end with this. You know, there are consequences to our choices. Okay, there are consequences to our choices. And I know that hell is not a term or subject that most people like to talk about today. It's interesting, I was reading an article, I think it was online, when they were doing a study of, you know, the millennials or, you know, the young people today. I think the millennials are under, what, 25-ish or something. But it's amazing that a lot of them did not believe in the concept of hell. That, they, that hell wasn't something that was even on the radar. I don't believe on it, believe in it. And what the author was saying, that it's hard to preach a gospel of good news if there's no bad news. You know, if you don't believe in hell, you know, why do you need good news? You know, and, and I think, you know, when you look at the church, the church really hasn't spent a whole lot of time talking about hell you know, in the last decade or so. Because I think in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, you know, and early, that's what church was all about, right? You go to church to feel guilty. Well, the pastor would pound the pulpit and talk about the fires of hell. And if you don't repent, that's where you're going. You need to repent, repent, and repent, or you are going to hell, you know? And that's what the church was all about. And so I think there was a big reaction to this. And we just flipped to the other side where it's like, okay, hell's there, but, you know, let's not talk about it. You know, but but just because we don't talk about it, it doesn't mean that it's not a reality. Jesus Christ talked a lot about hell. Because a lot of people said, well, I don't know about church, I don't know about God, but, you know, I love this guy named Jesus. He was this great teacher. He was this loving man. But this loving man who was God's son, did a lot of talking about hell. Why? Because Jesus knows that hell is a reality. Jesus knows that the only reason I came to die on the cross was to save people from this horrific future. Jesus himself talked a lot of hell, a lot about hell. But before we talk about hell, and that you know the contrast talk about the consequences of our choices hell also is rooted in god's love and we say well how could that be how could that be well you know what god loves each one of us to the point where you go he's saying you know what if you don't want to be in relationship with me now if you don't want to be with me i love you too much to force you to do that Therefore, the only loving thing I could do is separate you from me for all eternity. He's given each one of us a choice. And he's saying, I'm not going to twist your arm to love me. I'm not going to twist your arm to want to follow me. I'm not going to twist your arm to want to believe in me. You know, I love you that much. And the only thing I could do, the loving thing, is to separate myself from you for all eternity. Because you just... I'm not going to force you to be with me. But, you know, the thing that we see as heaven is, you know, what we know from Scripture is the presence of God. Hell is the absence of God. 
Okay? Heaven is eternal life. Hell is eternal death. Heaven is an unimaginable beauty. Hell is unimaginable horror. Heaven is the removal of all evil. Hell is the removal of all good. Heaven is eternal peace. Hell is eternal torment. Heaven is perfect fellowship. Hell is a loss of fellowship. Now let's just imagine. You know, when you think of hell, what do you think of? What do you, and, you know, this is a rhetorical question. What do you think of? Do you think of this devil with his pitchfork and all of his demons going around and poking you? You know, do you see this lake of flames and fire and people suffering? You know, I often wonder, what is hell and what does it look like? One thing I do know about hell is that it's the absence of God. It's the absence of God. It's the absence of any quality of God. And so when you think about it, love is a quality of God. In hell, there's not going to be any love. Faithfulness, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, forgiveness, beauty, loyalty, diversity, um, peace. All of these things are characteristics of who God is. And hell is totally not going to have that. So I can't imagine what it's going to be like. But I think that alone would be very, very tormenting. No joy. No happiness. No euphoria. No dreams. Nothing. No creativity. That's all God. That's all gift from God. That's not going to be there. So whatever it is, it's going to be a pretty, pretty bad place. And the thing is, I don't think we could even imagine that right now. Because everywhere we look, we see God's thumbprints. I look at the mountains, we see God's beauty. We see the love between a parent and a child. We see the love and the fellowship here. God's thumbprints is all over, are all over our world right now. But hell's going to be a place where those thumbprints are gone. I I don't know um, what that's going to be, but I've got to imagine that's going to be pretty horrible to be in a place where God is totally separated for all eternity. But you know what the good news is? God did everything he could to allow us to be saved. He sent his only son to die for us. He goes, what more can I do? I want everyone to be saved. I really do. And I gave my son so that you all could be saved. I don't want you to experience that future without me. I love you too much. And I've done all I can for you to experience eternal life. You know, it's up to you. He sent his son. But also in 2 Peter 3, 8, 9, Peter writes, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is the second coming of Christ, where Christ, God is delaying Christ's return as long as he can. Why? 
so as many people could have the chance of believing in his son to be saved as possible. John 15.26 says, When the Advocate comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Holy Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, will testify about me. The Holy Spirit now is present and working in the hearts of us and the hearts of the unbeliever, pointing them to Jesus Christ, pointing them to say, you know, some of the claims in the Bible may sound outrageous, but they're true. And that's why we believe them. And so one of the things that we could do is continually pray for those people that we know that need to know Jesus Christ. Because the Holy Spirit's out there working. The Holy Spirit's convicting. We need to keep praying, praying for the uh, for these people. God, please do your work. Please convict them. Finally, Romans 1, 19 to 21. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without an excuse. What's he saying? God made his invisible qualities in nature. You know, I don't know if you've been, like I've been, you know, skiing in the, when I was with Continental, skiing in the Austrian Alps. I mean, when you're in the Austrian Alps and you're just looking and you're going, oh my goodness, how could somebody not look at this and believe that there's a creator? Oh no, you go to parts of Hawaii or wherever and you just see creation in all of its splendor and you're just sitting there and you're going, wow, this is so awesome. There's got to be a creator. And this is what Paul was talking about. Basically, we're judged based upon our knowledge of him. But you know what? Just because we may not believe there are no consequences to our actions doesn't make that true. We could be like the ostrich and put our head in the, bury our head in the sand and say, you know what? You know, I don't believe that there's a hell. You know, I'm going to take my chances. I'm a fairly good person. You know, I was talking to this one person who said, you know what? Um, God, your way is so narrow. You know, I think I'm pretty good as my, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good on my own. And so I said, okay. You know, if you're right then I'm okay too, because I'm a fairly good person. You know, I wouldn't consider myself a criminal or an evil person. So if you're right about salvation, then I'm okay. But if I'm right, then you've got everything to lose. But I said, you don't have to be there, because God loved you so much that he gave everything he had. He, made ev- he did everything he could to provide a way for you to be saved. It's up to us to make that choice. Let's pray. Some of us might uh, be in this room right now who have, who have never you know, made that commitment to Jesus Christ. Where you're sitting here right now, maybe you've heard the message, and something inside of you is telling you that this is correct. You know, there's this burning sensation in your heart right now. And right now what we're going to do is we're going to give you an opportunity to make that decision for Jesus Christ. To make that decision 
for eternal life. To make a decision where all of your sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven. To make a decision that will allow you to live your best life. And finally, to make a decision that would prevent you from experiencing just the horrors of hell. You know, all it takes is that you first have to admit that you are lost and that you can't save yourself. That all of your good works aren't good enough. That you don't have the power to save yourself. All it takes is belief in that. And the second is that you have to believe that the only way that you could be saved is through Christ's death on the cross. Not your good works. Not by any other person who calls themselves God, but through Christ and Christ alone. Third, you have to believe that Christ's death is a payment for your sins. That all of your sins were paid for by Christ on the cross. And the last thing is to say, Jesus, I believe that. I accept you into my heart. I want to be your disciple from this day forward. I invite the Holy Spirit to come and reside in me. Those are the things you have to do. And if you have done those things, if you have never made that commitment, I ask, and I just plead with you that you would do it now. Because who knows, you may not have another chance at this. And God is knocking at that door. And if you believe in that, say this prayer with me. And make this prayer the prayer of your heart. Dear God, I know that I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. And Father, I believe and I've come to the realization that I can't earn salvation for myself, that I've given up trying to earn for something that I can't achieve on my own. And I believe that your son, Jesus Christ, who is the living son of God, died on the cross for my sins. And I accept his death on the cross as payment for my sin. I invite you into my heart this very day. I want to be your disciple. I want to change the way in which I once thought. Please enter my life. You know, and if you've prayed that prayer, you know, Pastor Stan and I are up here. I'd like you to raise your hand right now so, you know, we could talk to you afterwards because you're going to need help and guidance in that journey. So if you've made that prayer, said that prayer, would you raise your hand so we could see your hand?
Now, whether you, you made that commitment today or maybe you're holding off, I ask that you would continue to not brush Jesus off. But for those of you who are sitting here right now who have loved ones or friends or co-workers who do not know Jesus Christ, will you commit this time to lift them up in prayer? That the Holy Spirit would convict them to your truth, to the truth. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you so much for your great love for us that you are willing to sacrifice everything in order to provide a way for us to have eternal life. And Lord, I know a lot of us who have been walking with you um, for a long time have probably gotten used to um, the comfortability of our faith that we're saved and maybe a lot of our loved ones are saved. But Father, there are still out there, people out there that need to know the good news. So Father, may you convict our hearts to go out and tell those about the good news, about the great love that you have for this world. And that you have provided a way for them to experience eternal life. And so, Lord, we come to you with grateful hearts, thanking you for the, the precious gift that you gave us. And, Father, we look forward to the day when that gift will be fully realized as we see you face to face in heaven. Father, what a glorious day that will be. And, Lord, all of the pain and the suffering that we're going through right now. Father, those, all of that will just be wiped away. All of our tears will be wiped away as we stand before you in all of your glory. And Father, we also will be glorified. And we look so forward to that day. But Father, between now and that day, will you use us to be ambassadors of your good news. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.